The Interchange is brought to you by the Yale Program on Financing and Deploying Clean Energy. Are you looking for a way to advance your career and advance your knowledge? Well, through this online program, Yale University is training working professionals in clean energy policy, finance, and technology to accelerate the deployment of clean energy worldwide. To connect with Yale expertise, grow your professional network, and deepen your impact, visit yalecleanenergy.info slash interchange. And if you can't remember that, just go to the link in the show notes and make sure you apply before March 14th, 2021. Green Tech Media Podcast. We've got this really amazing bioengineering toolkit, right? We can design proteins, we can engineer plants, and we've historically used that toolkit to create medicines and to improve food production, crop production. We've, we've really never used it to tweak biology to store more carbon and specifically to store it locked away out of the carbon cycle. And it, so it seems like such a huge opportunity because the proof of concept is there. What should we be thinking about experimenting with, testing, or, or even considering to build? From trees to bioengineered microbes, what do we do to suck carbon out of the atmosphere? I'm Shail Khan, and this is The Interchange. So here are some terms that either you've started hearing a lot over the past two years, which is the case with me, or that I feel confident you are likely to start hearing a lot over the next two years. Negative emissions, carbon dioxide removal, carbon sinks, carbon drawdown, there's probably a few more to go along with that. They all refer to a suite of technologies that are designed to take CO2 that is already in the atmosphere and remove it. This is different from most of what we talk about on this show, which is how to emit less in the future. But the reality is that even if we do a great job of reducing our global emissions, even if we reach the vaunted goal of zero emissions by mid-century, we will still have too much CO2 in the atmosphere, according to climate scientists. So in addition to reducing our global emissions, we need to remove them. And that's where carbon dioxide removal, or CDR, comes into play. It's been the driving force behind actions from companies like Stripe and Shopify and Microsoft, who are all committing to purchasing what they call negative emissions from a host of technologies, ranging from the old school tree planting to the novel direct air capture. It's an increasingly diverse and vibrant technology landscape with lots of early stage activity, investment, and still some fundamental business questions yet to be answered. In my role as a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners, I've had a lot of conversations about CDR recently, and I found that the reactions I hear tend to fall into one of two camps. The first camp sees echoes of carbon offsets and the sort of boom and bust that that market saw a little over a decade ago. That camp has deep skepticism that any market that is largely or entirely reliant on either voluntary action from rich corporates or carbon pricing at a global scale will be able to grow and thrive on its own sustainably. The second group basically starts from the premise that carbon dioxide removal is necessary uh, from a climate mitigation perspective and works backward from there about how to turn it into a real market. It has taken me some time, but I will give away the fact that I'm increasingly in the bullish camp. I think there will be a real market 
for carbon dioxide removal, and that there is a suite of exciting technologies that are being developed to enable it. Let's see if you agree. In order to lay this all out, I was really excited to talk to Sarah Sklarsik. Sarah is uh, a jack of many trades. She is, as is relevant to this conversation, a carbon removal researcher currently at MIT. She's also an investor. She's formerly the co-founder of the mobility company GetAround. She's on the board of two SPACs, uh, one of which was one of the early SPACs that took the company XL Fleet public. She's on the board of a second SPAC by the same sponsor. But more importantly, she is an expert in what appears to be a somewhat esoteric field at the moment of using bioengineering approaches to develop technologies for carbon dioxide removal. So with no further ado, my conversation with Sarah. Sarah, welcome. Uh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Excited to have you. Let's start at the high level. Why is carbon dioxide removal important? Yeah. So um, first off, I think it's it's important to say that Anyone who's seriously researching and thinking about CDR at scale is thinking about it in addition to mitigation. So that's in addition to uh, reducing our CO2 emissions down to near zero. Um, there's no way that we can remove CO2 from the atmosphere without, uh, while we continue to pump out tens of gigatons equivalent CO2 per year and uh, stabilize the climate. It's just, it's just not possible. So it's not an either or between mitigating our emissions and removing atmospheric CO2, it's both. Um, and that being said, uh, you know, if the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has said that uh, if we want to stabilize temperatures at 1.5 degrees C or two degrees C uh, of warming, negative emissions technologies or atmospheric carbon dioxide removal, CDR for short, is not an option. We have to do it. Right. And the, the basic argument is sort of twofold. The first is that we may, even if we get to net zero, or even if we get to zero emissions globally, we probably won't get there fast enough. Right. So, you know, it, it wouldn't, it's not equivalent to say we get there tomorrow and we get there in 200 years. And in the meantime, we carbon dioxide removal provides a mechanism to deal with the transition period. That seems like one. And then the second is it's actually going to be very difficult to get to zero, zero. And so there's going to be a bunch of residual emissions that are hard to abate. And that's where the removal nets those out. So we're talking about net zero. That's why we say net basically. Yeah, exactly. So CDR can help compensate for really hard to decarbonize sectors, um, emissions that are really difficult to, to get to zero, at least on the time scale that we want. Um, and also, you know, if we want to stabilize the climate, ultimately on a sort of ground truth level, you need to be able to sort of grab CO2 out of the atmosphere and then put it lock it away somewhere safe, right? There's no substitute for that. There are other options potentially that could help us minimize warming, but that wouldn't actually chemically change the atmosphere the way that removing the CO2 will do. And that matters if you look at areas like the uh, acidification of the ocean, right? Which is, you know, rapidly making it difficult for, for sea life to thrive and, and um, you know, continuing to get worse. The only way we stop that is actually by changing the chemical composition of the atmosphere back to something closer to pre-industrial levels. The only way you can do that is to remove 
tremendous amounts of CO2 and to do it uh, very rapidly and, and, and really get to, to large scale in the next few decades. Yeah, my favorite metaphor that people use for carbon dioxide removal, the way to describe it, is the bathtub metaphor, right? Which is basically like the world is a bathtub. We're pouring emissions, that's the bathwater, into the into the world. It is overflowing. We do need to stop pouring more bathwater in. But in addition to pouring more bathwater in, we also need to pull the plug on the bathtub. And that's basically what CDR is doing. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny to, to mention the bathtub analogy, because I, I tend to think of it as like a boat, and there's a hole in your boat and you're sinking. And do you you know, fix the hole and bail out the boat. Well, I mean, you need to you need to do both, right? Uh, otherwise, the outcome's not going to be very good for you. That's interesting. That's like the reverse metaphor, but it still applies. <laughs> so, so CDR is not a new concept. We didn't just invent it, right? And uh, you know, and there's been um, there have been movements in the past toward things like tree planting, you know, some nature based solutions and things like that. But it does feel like we're in a we're at the beginning of or somewhere in the middle of a moment for CDR. Um, what do you think is driving that? Yeah, so uh, one was an, an updated um, IPCC report that came out uh, about 18 months ago, um, really underscoring the importance of negative emissions. I think that was a wake-up moment for a lot of people. Um, and certainly there have been some people working on this topic for you know, 10 to 20 years, I'd say David Keith, Klaus Lackner, but, but amongst the general public as an area of, um, you know, large scale awareness and investment from corporate dollars and federal research, it, it is fairly new uh, in terms of getting this much attention. Um, so I think it's the, the IPCC report and then also a growing awareness that we didn't mitigate fast enough, right? So this may have been sort of a far off option 20 or, or even 10 years ago that we you know, weren't sure if we would actually need to develop these technologies to capture uh, carbon from the atmosphere. And I think now we've realized that, look, there really aren't uh, any or many viable paths to keep warming under two degrees C unless we actually develop this. Yeah, that seems right to me. The other thing that has sparked, I think it's been part of this recognition. But the other thing that has sparked more attention of late is you mentioned corporate dollars. We've had, you know, a few large corporates, largely in the technology sector, who have, you know, there are lots of companies making big net zero greenhouse gas emissions proclamations, but a few of them have gone much further and said that we need to uh, create a market for carbon dioxide removal. In the case of Stripe, we need to remove all emissions we've ever created. In the, the case of Microsoft, um, Shopify somewhere in there as well. So there seems to be something in the kind of the vanguard of corporate action, which, you know, it's not dissimilar in my mind to like what Google did with corporate renewable energy procurement 10 years ago. You feel a new set of actors sort of doing something similar to basically try to create a market for CDR today. And I wonder if you think that's them reading the IPCC report and seeing the same thing that you're saying? Or do you think that there's some other special case that's driving this like corporate sort of ground up action? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. Um, I certainly wish I had the insight into, you know, the brains of big corporations that actually are taking a step in this direction. I, I think first for some folks, it was reading the more recent IPCC report that made it very clear that negative emissions is, is a critical piece of the answer rather than sort of a, a far off maybe option we might pursue. Um, and, you know, this might also be a, a moment to sort of 
um, explain the difference between carbon capture and carbon removal, which often get conflated, but are not necessarily the same thing. So uh, carbon capture has been around in some form since the 1970s, uh, sort of originally was, let's say, invented in maybe the 1920s or 30s, um, but sort of more used in the 70s a little bit. And the origin story was this was an oil and gas industry need for oil and gas industry purposes. Um, the initial use cases were enhanced oil recovery so uh, capturing carbon dioxide so you can kind of pump it into oil wells and get more oil out um, and uh, separating CO2 out of the plume gas coming out of uh, coal, uh, coal plants. And those are not uh, sort of chemically the same problems as removing CO2 from the atmosphere where it's, it's much, much, much more dilute. And of course, your, um, what you're going to then do with the CO2 might be different. Uh, and so I think there's a growing awareness now with the state that the climate crisis is in that we can't just sort of look at the technologies we had sitting in front of us because they're not really designed for atmospheric CO2 removal. They're designed for concentrated sort of smokestack removal or, or other sort of similar purposes. Um, and so we may need new technologies. We, we will need new technologies. And that in terms of how we address uh, the climate crisis, we can't sort of continue to, you know, throw a good effort out there and sort of hope it's enough, we actually need to fundamentally solve the problem of we have 415 or 17 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. And what we need to have is something closer to maybe 300, right? People people debate what the real number is, but it should be much lower than it is right now. Yes, I think that that's a really good point. The distinction between carbon capture, point source carbon capture and carbon removal is really important in, in the in my bathtub analogy, I'm sure we could do this in your boat analogy as well, but in my bathtub analogy, basically putting a carbon capture device on top of a smokestack, be it from a coal plant or somewhere else, capturing that CO2 and sequestering it or using it for an enhanced oil recovery, that is avoided emissions, right? That is stopping pouring more water into the bathtub. But that is distinct exactly. from sucking CO2 that is in the 400 some parts per million in the atmosphere out of the atmosphere and then putting it somewhere underground or storing it or something like that. That's the world of carbon dioxide removal. And that's pulling the plug in my bathtub. Exactly. Right. So, you know, it's, it's nice to prevent CO2 from getting out into the atmosphere and we should also be doing that, but it's not the same thing as taking back the CO2 that's already out there in excess, right? We need to do both effectively, but they, they're, they function differently. Right. Okay. So I think we've laid out why CDR is important and how it is distinct from other things. Now, the when you think about CDR, um, I guess before you really go into it, you probably only come up with like one or two ways to do it, right? Uh, and, but the reality is that there's actually like a pretty, I don't know, I find really interesting burgeoning ecosystem of different technological approaches to CDR. You could see this in uh, you know, these corporate procurements, right? So Microsoft and Stripe, for example, and Shopify, all three of them, they made these big commitments. They made initial procurements and then they made all their procurements public. So you can see what they procured. And it's a, it's an array of different technologies. So I think what we want to do here is we want to spend a minute talking through what are the, I guess, to the extent that there are conventional CDR solutions. We want to talk about those, those that sort of dominate the, the conversation and the procurements today. 
But then I also want to spend some time in your particular area of expertise, which is like the novel next gen bioengineering super frontier CDR capabilities. But l- let's start with the uh, the currently existing stuff. Um, why don't you lay out a couple of categories? Uh, yeah, sure. So there's um, direct air capture or, or DAC for short. I'll try not to use too many weird acronyms here. Um, and you can sort of think of that um, as like a large uh, factory that processes a lot of air, um, pushes that air over a contacting surface of some kind that binds CO2 out of the air. And then generally speaking, uses high heat to knock off the CO2 into some you know, system where it can be collected and um, usually pumped deep underground for geologic storage. And this, this process requires effectively a factory and um, usually a lot of energy, which right now is, is coming from some combination of geothermal, natural gas, uh, maybe maybe solar, but not exclusively solar. Right. And so DAC is kind of the, in some ways, it's like the holy grail. It's literally just a machine that sucks CO2 out of the atmosphere. If you had that at, you know, endless scale, you've solved your whole problem. But the challenge, as you alluded to, is uh, at least the current approaches, there's really only three companies sort of approaching at scale for DAC, Carbon Engineering, Climeworks, and Global Thermostat. And they have different approaches to it. But, you know, the fundamental problem is they use a ton of energy and the energy costs money. And so it's expensive. And so in these early procurements of DAC, you know, we're talking about mid hundreds of dollars per ton, five, six hundred dollars a ton for CO2, which anybody who knows in like CO2 abatement markets makes it very expensive today. And so the question is, can they scale and drive down costs sufficiently that DAC becomes a hundred dollars a ton or fifty dollars a ton, and then it's a totally different ballgame. Yeah, yeah, they they might be able to. Um, Carbon Engineering put out a paper relatively recently, kind of outlining their visibility into getting prices down to a hundred dollars a ton, which I don't think they've done yet, but they they sort of described how they could get there. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, building a large factory type facility takes a lot of resources, you know, metals and and um, other materials. It takes a lot of money. So carbon engineering's one megaton facility is, I think, expected to cost around $700 million. Um, and these, these plants still take a lot of energy to run. So great if that could be renewable. Uh, they still also need to be sited near geologic storage or some piping system to take the CO2 to storage. So I, I don't mean to sort of uh, diss these technologies, right? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, anyone who's like honestly developing scalable carbon removal systems is, you know, some kind of mild hero, we really need this. Um, But I think, you know, it it is helpful to go in with our eyes open about what a particular technology does well, and, you know, what its constraints are, so that we can actually develop a robust portfolio of technologies, given how important this problem is. Right. So that's a good segue, right? So you're, you're, so the, the challenge with DAC is cost and scalability. Um, so let's talk about nature-based solutions, which sort of solve that problem, but of course have other problems. Uh, the cost of planting trees and so on, very low and obviously highly scalable. We have enormous forests and, and tons of land globally that could uh, could suck up a lot more CO2. But what are the other challenges when you get into sort of the nature-based universe? Yeah, so there's certainly a role for nature-based solutions. Um, but it's not enough to get us the whole way there. So um, we can't plant our plant 
trees our way out of the problem. There's not enough land to plant enough trees to solve this problem. Um, there's also the issue of permanence. Um, so you can think about, let's say, uh, trees that you've planted to store carbon as a sort of temporary store of carbon in that the carbon's locked away in the trunks and the roots and the other biomass of these trees. But if a forest fire comes through, literally all that carbon goes up in smoke and it's gone. Um, whereas some of the other solutions that we talked about, like DAC with geologic storage, can be a permanent solution on the time scale of thousands or tens of thousands or, or, or much longer number of years, effectively permanent uh, in terms of us addressing this, this climate problem in the next you know, 100 to 200 years. Um, and so those are things to sort of balance off against each other, right? I think there's, there's a role for all of these technologies to play, but we need to make sure that we're, we're managing the risk across this portfolio because the fate of the atmosphere hangs in the balance. Yeah, and this is where I think there's the, it's interesting how this carbon removal market to the extent that it's a market is developing because it, on one hand you might think it's very simple like there should be a cost per ton of CO2 removal and that should be a market cost it should be a commodity and you should be able to trade it and so on but this is a good example of why it's not so simple right is the cost per ton of CO2 removed via planting a tree should that be the same given that it it is less permanent versus the cost of removing one ton of CO2 via direct air capture and then underground sequestration? Or should even within direct air capture, should it matter whether you are taking that CO2 and using it for enhanced oil recovery or just storing it underground? And so it's not quite as simple a market as you might imagine it to be. And this is part of why I think you know, the players who are procuring these tech companies in particular are buying a basket of different solutions at wildly different prices, right? Because the, you know, if you want to purchase nature-based solutions, particularly tree planting, it actually is pretty cheap. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's cheaper, but it's uh, a less permanent solution to the problem. Right. And it's not going to get us the whole way there. So that, that sort of points to a really interesting question about how do you sort of um, properly incentivize people who are developing technologies, given that they may be developing better methods of carbon removal in that it solves the problem on a more permanent basis, but it's going to be expensive. It's going to be more expensive for some amount of time. Um, you know, part of the reason Stripe, uh, you know, they, they laid out their, their reasoning in, in some blog posts, why they purchased from some of the more expensive providers that offer more permanence is part of their stated intent in purchasing negative emissions technologies, which helped spur an industry, right? To help spur innovation. And so they, they wanted to actually um, support people who are developing new and potentially you know, highly useful methods of CDR. But how does that scale to a whole marketplace? Do we, are we gonna have a price on carbon removal that does price in permanence or some of the other nuance around um, land use? Uh, I don't know. Uh, there are ways that could happen for sure. Um, you know, I think to some degree, either you're not you're not treating carbon removal as a strict uh, commodity where everything is equally sort of interchangeable. Uh, not to to name drop the podcast here, but um, you also could create a tiered marketplace where there's a certain amount of gigatons of permanent thousand plus year storage that people buy and that has a price, and and maybe there's mandates around how much of that you buy relative to. Uh, sort of more more short-term storage. 
I don't know. I, I haven't actually seen that proposed anywhere, but um, certainly there are ways this could be factored in. I think that is absolutely the core question. How does this, the two, sort of two questions within that one, how does this market scale? And two, how do you differentiate amongst the different solutions and the different sort of, um, I don't know, capabilities that they provide for for things like permanence and land use. But but let's briefly um, run through the rest of the sort of big categories of technology. And then I, I do want to talk a little bit about the kind of next gen suite of technologies that could be interesting. But in the sort of current currently available world, there's also biomass and soil-based solutions. Um, you can take waste biomass and convert it via a process uh, called pyrolysis to biochar, for example, which then you can use to um, to do a bunch of different things from building materials to, to soil uh, fertilizer. There, there's actual soil, for, like, you know, agriculture-based solutions as well and things that you can do to make the soil hold more CO2. There's ocean-based solutions, um, kelp sequester CO2, for example. So there, there's some others that are like currently in the mix, right? Yeah, yeah. So those are uh, real things and potentially quite useful, um, but uh, also have face their own constraints. So um, one idea that is uh, quite prominent is let's take waste biomass. So, you know, the, the corn stalks that are left over after you harvest corn, let's say. Um, and then, uh, harvest that biomass, either, uh, conduct pyrolysis so that you end up with biochar, which is basically this condensed form of carbon you can put back in the land and it's very stable, or you can do other ways to capture the, the carbon as a gas. Maybe you burn the biomass for energy, capture the carbon gas, and then store the carbon gas somewhere just like you would with, with DAC. Um, and that's called BEX short for Bioenergy Carbon Capture and Storage. There's an acronym for everyone here, so uh, <laughs> hang in there. Um, and, and these things, you know, they, they can work, um, but there's only a limited amount of waste biomass that can be harvested every year. And so that scales to maybe a few gigatons. If you want to start taking land out of production from other uses to just do this kind of carbon removal with it, you very quickly run out of farmland. And land in the world. There's not enough land in the world to, to just do this and, and get to 10 to 20 gigatons. A quick pause in the show to talk about an educational opportunity that we think you're really going to love. The Interchange is brought to you by the Yale Program in Financing and Deploying Clean Energy. Through this online program, Yale is educating with impact, training working professionals to accelerate the deployment of clean energy worldwide. It's estimated that approximately a trillion dollars per year will need to be dedicated to deploying clean energy to stay below a two degree Celsius temperature increase. The challenges and the opportunities for deployment are both immense and immediate. Tackling them requires a cross-sectoral approach and an interdisciplinary lens. It requires an informed workforce and a powerful knowledge network. And it requires sharp skills and a willingness to learn. This is precisely why Yale University drew on its deep expertise to offer a unique program marrying academic rigor with practical skills for working professionals in all parts of the clean energy industry. The program builds a common language across disciplines to better understand the interplay of the policy, financial, technical, and socioeconomic factors that support the growth of clean energy. To connect with Yale expertise right from your laptop, grow your professional network, and deepen your impact, visit the link in the show notes and apply before March 14th, 2021. It's funny, as a, as a sort of an aside, like, it's interesting, there's they're, they're sort of a, a 
top down and a bottom way, bottom up way to think about the uh, how how useful a given technology is from a scaling perspective. You know, as you're correctly describing, some of these things like Bex and biomass based solutions might top out at one to two gigatons. Now, from a climate change mitigation perspective, that's not enough on its own. Clearly, right, and so that's an argument for why we need more than that. On the other hand, from a bottom-up perspective, you know, from our from our perspective, looking at companies from venture capital lens, like one to two gigatons is a ton, and create if they were able to do that, creates an enormous market. We do use a we have a, a ridiculous amount of corn in the United States alone. If you were able to use all of that, it would create a very big business. So there's just these two very interesting, different. Um, context for how big is big. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point. I mean, some, some folks who are trying to do investments in this area really only want to look at things that are a gigaton or, or more of impact. And that's a tremendous number. I mean, that's a huge, huge, huge amount. You can be half that or a 10th of that and still be capturing a, a tremendous amount of, of carbon. So when I say, oh, this, this method only scales to a gigaton, it's, it's in no way that I'm trying to be dismissive of that. It's more just acknowledging the constraint um, and that one method, no one method alone probably will get us there. Certainly there are some that kind of have that relatively easy first accessible gigaton. And so we should do all those things first, but also invest in sort of more long-term development of technology and things that are scalable um, to larger amounts of gigatons so that overall we know we have the bandwidth to get where we need to go. Right. It would it would it would suck for us to be in a situation 20 or 30 years from now where, hey, you know, we're, we're chugging along doing three gigatons a year of carbon removal. That's great. But we didn't invest in any other options and we can't do more than three gigatons with what we have. And then we're kind of just plateaued there. So one, one thing we didn't mention is enhanced rock weathering or uh, ERW. And uh, the idea here is is to speed up a very slow natural process by which uh, rocks in the crust of the earth get exposed to the air through the process of tectonic plate movement and you know weakly acidic rain sort of dissolving rock and that rock naturally binds co2 so this happens already uh it pulls it's a way over geologic time that atmospheric co2 levels get reduced it's just very very slow so how could we speed that up um, so people are thinking about taking these types of rocks generally referred to as silicate rocks and grinding them up fairly small and sort of distributing them across large areas like unused beaches where waves will continue to grind them and they can just bind CO2. Um, So a company called Project Vesta is doing that. There's some academic research looking into this, Um, but that's certainly a uh, worthwhile avenue of investigation. All right. So now we get to the meat of it. I want to talk about the, the next gen stuff. Everything that we've mentioned now, I mean, none of it is like perhaps apart from tree planting, none of it is mature exactly, but it does all kind of already exist. What do you think is coming next? So there's, I think a next wave of the types of companies that we mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast. I sort of think of the companies that started 10 years ago doing DAC. It's like the OG <laughs> atmospheric carbon removal companies. And now there's this new crop of enthusiastic tech savvy entrepreneurs who are rightly, you know, horrified at the uh, state of the climate and, and sort of want to pitch in. And so they're trying out different DAC technologies. So I think we'll see those coming down the line soon. I, I certainly have heard of some companies raising their, their first round. So that's exciting and encouraging. But um, what I've been focused on researching at MIT for the last 
uh, almost two years are bioengineering driven approaches, um, which is a, a very neglected field in what's already a small field. <laughs> so, um, you know, my, my thinking here and really the question I asked when I, when I came to MIT was, okay, the only carbon removal we know of at the gigaton scale that happens is driven by biology. In fact, biology already captures out of the atmosphere 10 times more CO2 every year than, than humans emit. Um, of course, you know, that's a tremendous amount of biomass we're talking all over the whole planet, and that, that carbon isn't uh, sequestered away for a million years, right? It generally kind of pops back out in the carbon cycle every year. Um, and so, so the question is, look, we've got this really amazing bioengineering toolkit, right? We can design proteins, we can engineer plants, we can engineer microbes, we can design metabolic pathways. I mean, we're, we're still learning, but um, uh, there's a lot we can do. And we've historically used that toolkit to create medicines and to improve food production, crop production. We've, we've really never used it to um, tweak biology to store more carbon and specifically to store it locked away out of the carbon cycle. And it, so it seems like such a huge opportunity because the proof of concept is there and a lot of the enabling tools are there because we already spent decades developing these tools for other purposes. So now that we have them, what should we be thinking about experimenting with, uh, testing, or, or even considering to build? Um, because I hadn't seen that question answered anywhere. Um, so I set about trying to you know, do a first stab at answering that question. Yeah, it is one of those things where you hear it and you're like, yes, obviously we should be leveraging these techniques that we've been developing across a wide variety of other industries for decades and applying them to this, you know, single fundamental problem that is the biggest problem in the world. And yet it does seem like that has been a sort of unloved area, as you said, small, small area within a small area. Give me a couple examples of what that might actually look like in practice. Sure. So um, keeping in mind that these are all hypothetical things that, that aren't actually being built. Um, you know, one approach is to say, look, what is, how does biology, how do organisms already um, conduct processes naturally that end up sequestering carbon for lots of amount of time? Can we, can we just kind of amp that up? Can we help biology along? So one thought is um, biomineralization. So uh, microbes, other organisms can actually create mineral forms of carbon, uh, so carbonates. Um, usually you've got a calcium or a magnesium that binds to a CO2 and becomes a, you know, an MgCO3, and it's very, very stable. Um, and so lithotrophic microbes, so basically rock-eating microbes, already do this. Could we look at uh, deliberately cultivating or, or even engineering these microbes to do this faster? And could we maybe have say abandoned mine sites that you fill with crushed silicate rocks and exactly it's sort of the right growing conditions to cultivate microbes so that they can speedily kind of dissolve this crushed rock and sequester maybe even gigatons of carbon and sequester it where it'll be locked away safely for a long time, possibly even helping to remediate these sort of open mine pits. Um, or, you know, you could think about doing this in, in, a, in a closed system or a semi-enclosed system if, um, sort of their environmental concerns about using modified microbes. Although you could probably do this with natural microbes as well. So there's a lot of nuance to, you know, are you modifying an organism through directed evolution, through, through um, sort of 
selection processes, through direct genetic engineering. People have different thoughts about the pros and cons of either way, but there's a lot of different pathways here. From a technological perspective, what's what's hard about doing that? Like, say you were to set out tomorrow to do exactly what you just described, what would the what would the roadblocks be? It's a great question. Um, the roadblocks are different for different biologically mediated solutions, but one one sort of, sort of very fundamental problem is: look, we haven't studied these organisms and studied these natural systems before with an eye to how do these systems fix carbon out of the atmosphere, um, right? I mean, sometimes we've studied that for other reasons, but we haven't really been trying to understand these processes so that we could achieve more atmospheric carbon removal, which means that there's there's a number of unanswered questions. What are um, the chemical steps in these processes of breaking down silicate rocks that are uh, slowing the process down the most, right? And then what would be the ways to speed up those processes? These are still pretty pretty open questions. I, I think there's there's some inkling from what we know about how silicate rocks get dissolved that give us a, a clue about where to look, but certainly more fundamental research would be really, really helpful. Is there another example that you're particularly fond of? I know I, I looked at your master's thesis and there's a bunch of them in there. <laughs> yeah, so um, one kind of bonkers idea I had uh, that that I'm fully admitting might, might be bonkers and maybe not a great idea, but if you're really just thinking about, look, how do we how do we store lots and lots and lots of carbon fairly quickly and, and safely? Okay, start by looking at what kinds of plants um, are very productive you know, per acre, per hectare, which ones produce a lot of biomass. And of particular interest is biomass underground because right, it's already kind of in a place where it could be locked away and stored. Um, so you know, one example is cassava. Cassava is tremendously productive and it, it makes a lot of starch, which is um, largely carbon by content. Uh, and so what if you made a modified form of cassava that created a thin shell of a very, very tough biopolymer that was resistant to degradation? Um, something that maybe plants already make, like sporopollenin, which is this um, incredibly tough biopolymer that can last for even millions of years that surrounds um, seeds, uh, actually pollen, pollen grains to keep them um, intact and, and to protect them. So, you know, look, kind of crazy idea, but using, you know, existing natural parts that plants already make that are safe, that are non-toxic, that plants already have the sort of machinery in terms of metabolic pathways and enzymes to make these things um, that could perhaps be repurposed. What would that then look like? So then, so say you could do that, would you then just plant a ton of cassava uh, everywhere that you possibly can? And it is in the fact that it has this hard... Uh, biopolymer shell means that it is sort of effectively sequester sequestering the carbon itself? Or what would you do? So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a way to sort of potentially cheaply sequester lots and lots of carbon in place. I, I did the back of the envelope calculation that um, getting to 3.6 gigatons per year of uh, carbon dioxide storage would require about uh, twice the area of, of our lawns in the United States. And that's to get a significant part of the way to the global total. So that's actually very, very effective compared to some of the other strategies like Bex. That being said, I don't know what it would look like to have, you know, land where there's just these like really tough roots that aren't gonna degrade for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years down there. Um, I don't think you'd wanna do that everywhere. 
I don't think you'd want to do that on like highly productive cropland. Um, maybe that's an answer for land that's degraded because this might in a way help hold the soil together. I don't know. It hasn't been studied. It's a pure hypothetical. Uh, maybe this could be useful in land that was farmland and now is getting inundated by uh, ocean waters from rising oceans and is, is seeing saltwater incursion is, isn't useful for growing food anymore, right? It could be maybe useful for carbon storage. Um, but, I, I, you know, I don't know the answer, but I also think there's a lot of potential and enough potential that we should be answering. We should be asking these questions and more people than me should be answering them. Yeah. So what do you think it takes to, to you know, galvanize enough of it, an R&D community, a scientific community, potentially a business community, ultimately, to to test out all of these different ideas with all these different approaches? Yeah. Well, I think first we need to decide, like, what are the good ideas we should be investing in, right? It shouldn't be kind of what what any one person is, is throwing out in a master's thesis at MIT, no matter how enthusiastic and interested they are. I mean, I think we really, we need to get people together who are experts in different domains, in soil carbon, in ecosystems, in forest management, in you know bioengineering, protein engineering, all, all kinds of fields, and understand, look, what would, what would even matter if it worked, right? What gets us safely to gigaton scale? Um, and then I think we need to create uh, some clear targets. You know, what is it specifically we're trying to achieve? A plant that can grow, you know, to a certain amount of biomass per acre and store a certain amount of carbon. You know, what, what do the targets look like? And we resource against those targets, resource a research program. Um, I think probably that's, that's a federal research program. Maybe it's a public-private partnership. I don't see how we get there without that, right? If you think of the other really, really big pushes that we've made to develop new technologies in strategically important industries in this country. It, it, it came from an acknowledgement first that that target was important. It was strategically important to the country and then we properly resourced against it. So going to the moon, um, developing nuclear power, um, even a lot of the biotechnologies we've developed for say, you know, purposes of fighting cancer and other diseases, these have been deliberate efforts. Um, so I, I don't see how we get a robust R&D pipeline of solutions that may take, some of these may take 10 or more years to develop um, if we don't invest in that. Because, you know, that, that's usually beyond the timeline that like corporate R&D can, can take on. Um, academic labs can't really throw a lot of their time behind this if nobody's giving them grant money to do it. Uh, so I think there's, the good news is there's a lot of really, really brilliant, really motivated scientists that actually deeply care about this problem and want to work on this and, and have all kinds of ideas. So the talent bench is there. Um, I think the target's already been set for us by uh, you know, the, the inevitable physics of climate change. And I think what we need now is, is to really have a good discussion about what should we be developing and how do we go about doing that? Transitioning back, I guess, to close back on the market for CDR, it feels to me like there's, you know, of all the technological approaches, there's sort of two buckets. One bucket is removing CO2 from the atmosphere and taking that carbon in whatever form it is in um, and sequestering it permanently, doing nothing with it. And the benefit of that is that it it is the is what we need to do from a climate climate change mitigation perspective um the downside to that is that the only revenue stream you can gain from most of those technologies if you are going to deploy them is 
carbon dioxide removal. So you need there to be a big, robust market for, for CDR for it to make any sense whatsoever. There's another basket of them, like, for example, if you're going to do uh, biomass to biochar, where you have a secondary revenue stream, you could sell the biochar because it can be used in a bunch of different applications. Or, you know, if you're even if you're doing direct air capture, you capture CO2, you might be able to sell that. There is a market for CO2 and it is growing. You can turn it into synthetic fuels and other things like that. You can use it to carbonate Coca-Cola. Um, so there you have a secondary revenue stream, but then in some of those use cases, you may actually end up releasing that CO2 back into the atmosphere. How do you think about the question of scaling these technologies, building sustainable business models to scale these technologies and whether you need a secondary revenue stream or not? So carbon capture and utilization, um, is often at odds with carbon capture and permanent storage or long-term storage, not always, but often. And I think it's important to keep that in mind. Um, if you're going to use the carbon that you've removed from the atmosphere to make a food product or to sort of bubble into soda or something, um, you didn't really permanently remove it, right? That You sort of have to assume that's going to be back in the atmosphere on roughly a year time frame. Um, there are some forms of utilization that are more durable, that lock carbon away for potentially maybe even a hundred years. Um, building materials is probably top of that list. Right, like carbon carbon cure is probably the biggest example of this with cement production. Yep, with cement, with sort of composite materials you can make that are, that are rich in carbon or that are uh, sort of using biomass. Uh, some people are trying to do forms of treated timber or bamboo. And, you know, this, this is fine, right? This, this could potentially scale to at least uh, a meaningful amount of stored carbon, um, the amount of building material that we use is at the scale of the problem, right? It, it's gigatons per year. I think cement is like 10 gigatons a year. Um, that being said, you know, are all the world's building materials going to be completely and only derived from approaches that store more carbon? I don't know. I don't know that that works in every case. So I think it's a, it's a piece of the answer. I don't think it's the whole answer, but I think it could be a very important piece. All right. Final question. What what drives this market from where it is today, which is, you know, fair amount of interest, fair amount of early stage innovation, uh, a few large corporate commitments, and not a ton beyond that. What scales it from that to multiple gigatons a year and like a, what does this have to be? Hundreds of billions of dollars annual market, probably. Uh, I think we need to put a price on carbon pollution, right? We need to pay people a reasonable amount, a feasible amount to remove lots and lots and lots of CO2 from the atmosphere, because it's hard to see how anyone can afford to invest in developing and building equipment and factories and novel processes and, and staffing them if they're not getting paid to do this incredibly valuable uh, service to the planet. And so I, how that exactly will happen, I'm not sure. Is it, you know, some countries put a price on carbon and other countries don't? Uh, is there a, you know, one international price? I think that's going to be hard to pull off, but maybe it will happen. Um, I think voluntary commitments from you know, fairly wealthy corporations that care and that choose to offset um, their current and historical emissions through carbon removal can get us somewhere. 
right? I think that's a really important early piece of the market to help these companies get out the door and have a first customer. Um, but I don't see us getting to a trillion dollars a year market of CO2 removal without some efficient uh, demand, right? It's a demand and a supply problem. And we, we have to work on both right now because we're so far from where we need to be. Well, I, for one, am excited to see the fields and fields of uh, carbon sequestering cassava that I think are <laughs> undeniably coming. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time today. Absolutely, Shale. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah Sklarsik is a carbon removal researcher currently at MIT, where she is one of the few focusing on the vanguard of bioengineering and carbon dioxide removal. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio in partnership with Green Tech Media. Daniel Waldorf is our senior producer. Stephen Lacey is our executive producer. Tell us what you thought of the conversation. Uh, tweet at us at, at Interchange Show. Tell us that there actually is a gigantic community of bioengineering carbon removal researchers that we don't know about. Send us an email if you prefer a screed. Uh, send it to postscriptaudio at gmail.com. Give us a rating, but only a good one. Share it with a friend, but only good friends. Uh, it helps other people learn about the show. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange from Green Tech Media.